0: I invite you now to turn to Romans chapter 3, we'll be, look, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 20, Romans chapter 3, 9 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord through the mouth and the pen of the Apostle Paul as he is written to the church at Rome and by God's providence and grace to us here in Fawn Grove. What then, are we Jews any better off? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and understanding of his word this morning. Beloved, the Apostle Paul has, in this text, but especially in the first uh, portion of the book of Romans, he has uh, laid out the black velvet backdrop ever so carefully. And with our text for this morning, he is flattening the wrinkles and smoothing out the corners. Soon he will set the beautiful diamond of justification on its black velvet backdrop, but not quite yet. Paul wants us to concentrate on the bad news of sin so that we will appreciate the gloriousness of God's mercy in Christ and the benefit of justification. Paul will just barely touch upon justification at the conclusion of our text in order to get us ready for the beauty of redemption in Christ that will take up the rest of the letter. Paul has been concerned to show the universal extent of the nature of bad news, of sin. The goodness of the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ depends upon a due appreciation of the badness of the bad news. In the last few sections of our letter, Paul has been driving home the point That while being a member of the old covenant people of God had real benefits or advantages, it did not yield automatic acceptance with God. That is where we are now as we take up Paul's letter again. And that brings us to our first point. As we look at verse 9, Are the Jews better off? Given what Paul has already said, about the real advantages that Jews possess because they constitute the old covenant people of God, we might be tempted to think that he will go further and argue that Jews are accepted by God on the basis of their being Jewish, their being among the people of God. Now, many among the old covenant people of God had fallen into the trap of thinking that outward membership in the people of God or even simply being ethnically Jewish, was sufficient to gain them acceptance with God now and at the last day. Many thought they would find acceptance on the the basis of their fulfilling the requirements of the law. They thought that we still had the the ability to obey the law in all of its details. Of course, Paul has at least two answers to the confusion of his fellow countrymen on such a momentous issue as finding acceptance with God. First, being outwardly connected to the old covenant people of God will gain you no brownie points with God when it comes to salvation. Second, no one can earn his way to heaven by what he does or who he is. Both of these attempts at currying the favor with God, either now or at the final judgment, are, as we, if we think about it, really it's, uh, forms of attempting to earn our salvation. If you are a member of a Bible-believing church, or have been raised in the church and have grown up in it and are fully integrated into, lo- into the life of a local, or regional, or national or even international church, that by itself will not gain you acceptance with a holy God. If you know the Ten Commandments by heart and can recite them on demand or know the Bible backwards and forwards, that by itself will not gain you acceptance with a holy God. Now please note that both of these things, church membership and Bible knowledge and memorization, are absolutely necessary and essential for an obedient Christian life. But by themselves, they will not gain us acceptance with God. God does call us to be members of the church and to be actively studying his word. This is not just a concern for ministers and their families, or ministers in training, or men who desire to be a minister. Nor is it only a concern for elders or men who aspire to that office. Nor is it only a concern for deacons. All Christians need to be members of a church in order to participate in the life of the church the way the Bible describes that life and what it expects of believers. We are to be all, every one of us, to be held accountable both to one another and to the, uh, under the oversight of elders and receiving uh, support from deacons. And, beloved, there's, there's no way to follow the biblical commands uh, to love one another, to care for one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to correct one another and challenge one another when needed if we are not with one another. You get the point. But all of this is important and very important, but it will not by itself get us acceptance with God. God also expects us to know, memorize, and understand His Word. If we read it with care and understanding, accompanying faith in Christ, we know that the Holy Spirit will cause us to grow in our familiarity with the Word our understanding of it, and our obedience to it. Beloved, obedience to God's word is obedience to God. But it is possible, it is just possible, to read the word in an ultimately unbelieving way. Many do. Many do this every minute of every day. The Sadducees and the Pharisees of Paul's day and our Lord's day read the Bible in an unbelieving way, no matter how much they thought they had mastered it. If we read the Bible without reference to the person and work of Jesus Christ and his accomplishment of redemption, we are reading the Bible inappropriately. If we read it thinking that we don't need the illumination of the Holy Spirit, or read it without the due use of ordinary means, as the Westminster Divines put it, like benefiting from public worship, as you are this morning, as we are, or using Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, and even turning once in a while to our confessional standards to help us uh, in other helpful theological books. If we read the Bible without these and think that everything is understandable, without the assistance of the Holy Spirit and the due use of these means, like books that we have out in the lobby uh, and other uh, resources, then we are reading the Bible in a what's often called a facile way. That means on the surface. We're skating on the surface of the ice, not delving deep. Uh, reading the Bible superficially is reading it disobediently. Last week in Sunday school, uh, uh, those who were there will remember that we were asking questions uh, about the fourth commandment and you know what is forbidden and what is required. And one of the things that is forbidden is to observe the Sabbath in a uh, lackadaisical manner. Think about that. The, uh, not, putting, not having your heart in it uh, is a form of sin. That's kind of scary, but that's, that's true. And there's more to say. Uh, Reading the Bible superficially is reading it disobediently, reading the Bible the way the writers for the the Christmas and Easter editions of Time and Newsweek, for those of you who remember those news magazines, uh, if you read it the way they read it, then you are reading it without spiritual benefit. And you know that at Christmas and Easter, they feel obligated to issue a magazine with some picture of Jesus or some aspect of the, the Christian faith, and often to deride it, to make fun of it, to, to uh, say things that are quite inaccurate. This is not to say that we cannot learn from such magazine articles, but if we can benefit from such things, it is because we are united to Christ and have his spirit dwelling within us so that our minds and our hearts are renewed and enlightened. So it is not that church membership and Bible reading are unimportant or play no role in the obedient, ever-growing Christian life. Quite the contrary, but these activities ought to grow out of our life in Christ. You see, beloved, apart from our union with Christ and faith in Him as Savior and Lord, these activities or accomplishments will be barren and will be without spiritual benefit. Having said that, Please know that if you have not yet come to faith in Christ, it is by attending worship services like this one that you hear the word and you hear it preached and and the Lord may draw you to himself. It is the Holy Spirit, after all, speaking in the word who draws you to Christ by faith. Uh, So I am not suggesting that you stay away from church and stay away from the Bible until you come to faith in Christ, as if such a thing were possible. Quite the contrary. But uh, it is through church attendance and membership and Bible reading and memorization that God draws us to himself, and it is the way that God feeds his sheep. Paul is simply reminding us, and this is the important point, that we can go through the motions without benefiting in the way church and the Bible were meant to benefit us. It is possible to attend worship every Sunday, morning and evening, if you had the two services. It is possible to be born, baptized, and raised in the church, and to die, and, and, and to never have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I was 18 when I came to faith in Christ, that's 18 years prior. That's 18 years being exposed to the gospel twice every Sunday and during the week. So it is possible, beloved. And that's what Paul is saying. That being a Jew is not enough. Being a part of the old covenant people of God outwardly is not enough. One must be a Jew inwardly. That's, and he'll build on that later. Now, there is one reason why neither of these activities, alone or even together, will obtain justification or divine acceptance. That is, coming to church and reading your Bible are the means God uses to bring you to faith and to sustain you in the faith, but these activities by themselves will not justify you, it will not gain you divine acceptance. All human beings who have ever lived, are living, or will live, except only one, are under the reign of sin. And to that we turn to next, as we look at the verses 10 through 18, and the second point, no one is righteous. In the next series of verses, the Apostle Paul cites a litany or a series of texts from the Old Testament to substantiate his claim that all men and women, boys and girls, Jews and Gentiles alike are lost in sin. Paul is here tying together verses from different places in the Old Testament uh, in a fashion often practiced by the rabbis of his day called pearl stringing. You get the idea, right? You've seen pearl necklaces where pearls are uh, slid, slid into place on a necklace and then the woman places the necklace on her neck. Uh, Paul is stringing together a pearl necklace from biblical passages that that show from God's point of view, the whole human race is a sinful mess. I'm not talking about who we are as believers in Christ, I'm talking about who we are by nature outside of Christ. Uh, Paul begins with verses from Psalm 14, which we read earlier, the first three verses, and then he combines those with uh, uh, Psalm 53, the first three verses, which leave us in no doubt that the results of the fall are universal. Consider the words none and all. These are universal negatives and positives. No one is righteous. Not one person. While our first parents were created upright and holy and knowledgeable, ever since the fall, neither they nor we can be characterized that way by nature. Now, of course, there is one exception. Jesus Christ is that exception, beloved. And what a glorious exception he is. He is the one exception who makes our acceptance with God not only possible, but actual, real. He is the one that does that. Paul also reminds us that no one does what is right, no one understands, and of course these are the results of the fall into sin. We are all by nature guilty of breaking God's law, and we have as a race, that is the human race, become corrupt so that all of us are dead in sin. None of us does what is right. None of us understands the condition we are in without help from the outside. We have all turned aside. That is, we have given up on trying to follow God's will from a willing and able heart and mind. Paul says, no one no one of us seeks after God. So much, I guess, for seeker-sensitive churches. Now, seeker-sensitive churches are often churches that have uh, forgotten uh, what church is all about. Churches are, when we gather for worship on Sunday, beloved, we are gathering as the people of God to worship God. If there are unbelievers in our midst, that's great. In fact, we want to encourage that but the worship service on sunday is not an evangelistic campaign that is perfectly fine for the other days of the week but the worship that we have gathered as his people is worship of god by his people and of course it's to be done intelligently as paul argues in 1 corinthians and the point of intelligent worship is that if an unbeliever is present he will hear the gospel and fall down and worship God. Paul then draws from Psalm 5.9 and Jeremiah 5.16 when he summons the image of the throat as an open grave. The picture is horrifying. Our mouths are deep, dark pits. Our tongues only practice deception. Here Paul adds the support from Psalm 140 verse 3 to move uh, the way I would describe it from passive decay to active wickedness, including the venom of asps that is under our tongue, the poison of deceit. In sin, we destroy with our tongues. As the Apostle James reminds us, the tongue is a world of evil, a spark that can set the whole forest afire. Paul further draws from Psalm 10.7 to remind us that our mouths are filled with bitterness and curses. Sadly, we see this around us in the unbelieving world, do we not, all too frequently. But sadly, this is also true among us who claim the name of Christ. Now, it was certainly true of some or many of the old covenant people of God. Uh, They were often bitter and cursed one another and and cursed God and cursed their leaders when the circumstances didn't go their way. We see this in the account of the Israelites uh, often in the wilderness. Uh, The golden calf incident in Exodus 32 is uh, an obvious example. We see this in the day of the judges. We see it in the days of the kings. We see it in the days of the prophets. We see bitterness and curses among those who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem from exile to rebuild the city and the temple. We find it in our own hearts and sadly upon our own lips. When you find that you have no reason to thank God for his love and care, remind yourselves that he is a patient God who puts up with our bitterness and curses. Even yesterday when I was in Presbytery, my heart was not always obedient and right. And so, trust me, folks, when, when I just talk about this, bitterness and curses are uh, a, a temptation we all face. But thankfully, beloved, our Lord took the wrath of God for these deceitful tongues and lying lips and bitter hearts and minds. He died not for his sins, but for yours and mine. He didn't die for his sins, but for yours and mine. Paul next turns to, to, uh, and the scholars disagree, he's either citing Proverbs 1.16 or Isaiah 59.7 and 8, and they have the same language. So perhaps he's citing both. He's known for doing that. The ravages of sin within the lives of the fallen human race move from the sharp edges of the rabid tongue to murder and violence pillaging and rampaging and all sorts of mayhem. Why do I think of uh, Vikings when I read that? I don't know. Perhaps because they're known for doing that sort of thing. With all apologies to our Scandinavian friends. Historically, we see hatred rear its ugly head in the relationship between Cain and Abel, the two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve. You remember that Cain killed his brother, And murder was now added to the resume of sin and misery that resulted from the fall of Adam and Eve. And now we are more than familiar with the ravages of sin in the world and how it encompasses both death and destruction. Sin gives rise to mayhem and murder. We see it throughout the Bible. Just a few examples, King David commits adultery with Bathsheba and contrives the murder of her husband Uriah. Put him in the front of the battle, guaranteed he'll get killed, and he was. When the Son of God came on the scene, he was charged falsely with crimes he never committed and then had his skin flailed by the ill-famed catadine tales of the Roman soldiers, and then after shedding a profuse amount of blood, he was forced to carry the crossbeam of his cross, known as the titulum, to the place, he was forced to carry it to the place of execution. Now, we remember that he was, he was so weak, he wasn't able to do so, and he had to, the Roman soldiers had to call upon another to help him. But when he got to Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross. And when he died and had given up the ghost, a soldier pierced his rib cage, and drew out even more blood and water. In the path of sinful man is misery and ruin. Such sinful fallout has continued down to our own day as we contemplate the conclusion of the most murderous century in the history of the human race, at least it's what the historians say. The 20th century, with its two world wars, The Holocaust, not to mention the ever-present reality of the wickedness of abortions and now euthanasia, such things as taking your life when you want to take it, has now become fashionable and not just in the Netherlands, but in Canada and in the United States. The only answer to such universal misery and death that has come as a result of sin is the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace only comes through the satisfaction of God's righteous anger against sin and those that perpetrate it. Now, Paul concludes his pearl necklace here uh, of biblical support for the universality of sin by alluding to Luke chapter 1, verse 79 uh, and uh, our Lord's discussion of the way of peace And he pulls in Psalm 36, 1 as well. Those soaked in sin cannot find the way of peace so as to walk therein, and they have no fear of God. Can you imagine how sin clouds our judgment and blinds our eyes and hardens our hearts? We fear what all kinds of men and women think of us and what they might individually do to us or what they might congregate to do to us, And this fear is not necessarily misplaced. We are concerned about our portfolios, the stock market, how it rises and falls, the economy in general, culture, our job. We fear these things. But how is it that we fear puny men and women and their weapons, but we have no fear of the Almighty God, who is able not only to destroy our bodies, Jesus said, but both body and soul in hell? We have no fear of the God who made us and upholds us even in our very act of sinfulness and who can toss us into the trash can of hell with absolute justice. Think about that. That's scary. That's sobering. It also is the same God who has shown grace and mercy to us. If we give a moment's sober reflection to the reality of sin and its infection of our hearts and minds and how it has killed us, so that we are not just sick, but we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Do we understand what this means? Do we realize that our sinfulness and the sins we commit, beloved, are not subject to self-help remedies? Soup for the soul will not suffice. We are all in this mess together, by the way, by nature, It is only by supernatural grace and activity that we can be rescued from death-dealing sin. It is only because God has reached down to spiritually resurrect us that we can escape the terrible reality that Paul and the earlier biblical writers he cites describe in these verses. And that brings us to our third and final point. No one will be justified by works of the law. Paul is clear about the fact that we are all by nature dead in our sins. He says that not only in Romans, but in almost all of his letters, simply to remind the saints to whom he is writing about their past. We cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot earn our way out of our sinful condition and into God's favor, beloved. What Paul says here, he says to both Gentiles who have had none of the privileges that the old covenant people of God had, but he also has said it to his own countrymen. Both Jew and Gentile are caught up in the mess of sin and its outworking in our individual and communal lives. In our concluding verses of our text for this morning, we see that Paul returns to the question of justification which he will give a fair bit of attention to in the next few chapters. What is Paul talking about? Justification has to do with finding favor or acceptance with a holy God so that we can experience a forgiveness of sin and be found righteous in his sight and therefore enter into fellowship with him here and now and into glory with him in eternity. In other words, to be justified is to be found innocent or to be vindicated. It is to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Our standards include two elements, forgiveness of sins and imputation of Christ's righteousness. Earlier in chapter 2, we saw that Paul told his fellow countrymen that God was impartial and that all men would be evaluated by God according to the unchanging rule of righteousness, which God is himself we will not be justified by hearing or possessing the law of god but only by doing it paul says in romans 2:13 doers of the law will be justified in the sight of god and only doers now remember paul is at this point still talking to his fellow countrymen who who were in the habit of thinking that merely by being a member of the covenant people of God. Uh, Men, by having circumcision, uh, by uh, uh, supposedly obeying the whole law, they would find acceptance. And Paul is reminding them to stop mentally exempting themselves from the dreadful effects of the fall and the righteous judgment of God. Jews have many advantages over Gentiles, and they have the oracles of God, the covenants, the prophets, and the like. Paul's main concern is with his fellow Jews who think, as I've already said, that being Jewish or possessing the law is enough. He tells them it's clearly not. None of us will be able to stand before a holy God and plead innocence. As Paul says elsewhere, we are without excuse. By nature, outside of Christ, We all stand condemned before the judgment seat of a holy God apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Given our deadness and sin and the universality of this problem, how can anyone find approval, acceptance, or vindication in the sight of a holy, righteous, and good God? Nobody can. Paul has said that only doers of the law will be justified in the sight of God. And here he tells us that no one will be justified in the sight of God on account of the works of the law. To put it more succinctly, God only justifies those who do the law, and yet no one will be justified on this basis. That's scary. What gives? The problem is sin and its consequences. Sin has made the fulfillment of the law impossible. Now, if we put this in the form of a basic syllogism, that is a logical relationship, it would look something like this. A, God only justifies those who fulfill or do the works of the law. And then the the conclusion, C, therefore no one will be justified by works of the law. Okay, there's, there's an unstated middle premise. No one can fulfill the law or do its works. That's Paul implies that he doesn't say it. This format helps us to see this implied middle premise of Paul's argument. The first premise and the conclusion are spelled out for us here, but the middle premise is implied in what Paul tells us about the universal breadth and depth of sin. This is the bad news, beloved, that makes the good news necessary. Because the implied middle premise is true, no one will be justified in God's sight by way of fulfilling the law perfectly, personally, and perpetually. The three Ps. Do you realize the weight of this truth? Not one of us will be found pleasing or acceptable to God because of our obedience to the law of Moses in particular, nor... Will we be found acceptable because of our attempts to win God's favor by other standards of religious or moral persuasion? In conclusion, beloved, there is only one way to find acceptance with God given the reality of sin and its consequences. We must put our trust in Jesus Christ. He it is who is the one exception to the universality of the breadth and depth of sin. Christ neither had a sinful nature, nor did he commit any particular sin because of possessing a sinful nature. He was therefore able to please God the Father by his obedience in the whole of his life, but also by his willingness to go to the cross and to bear in his own body the wrath of God, which should really fall upon us. Jesus Christ also merited the Father's approval, which was made evident by his resurrection. By being raised from the dead, the curse that was upon him for our sakes was overturned. He has been raised, and he has ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits, having accomplished the work the Father sent him to do. That's why he sits. All those who look to Jesus Christ for all this and more are those who are justified both in this life and at the general judgment at the end of the world. You can be justified in the sight of God only by trusting in Christ, by being united to him by faith. It is Jesus who has personally, exactly, and entirely fulfilled the law for you and for me. So the question is, have you sought after this Jesus? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would meditate upon it throughout the day. We pray your blessing upon our confession of faith and the singing of the hymn. We pray that you would go out with us as we go out into the world. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.